Hello everyone and welcome once again to Motos and Friends, Ultimate Motorcycling's weekly podcast. My name is Arthur Coldwells. Our first segment introduces you to the new Arch 1S. This latest, slightly more sporting American V-Twin adds to the original KRGT1 that comes from the boutique manufacturer based in Hawthorne, Southern California. Senior editor Nick DeSena rode through Malibu with Guard Hollinger. He co-founded Arch Motorcycle with his friend Keanu Reeves. The 1S is a unique ride for sure, and Nick explains what makes this bike really stand out. The guest segment of Motos and Friends is brought to you by the faster and most technologically advanced 2023 Suzuki Hayabusa. It's one of the most iconic sport bikes ever. Check it out in person at your local Suzuki dealer or visit suzukicycles.com to learn more. In our second segment, associate editor TJ Adams chats with Tom Beers. He's the former chairman and CEO of Fremantle Media North America. They're responsible for American Idol and America's Got Talent. Tom's astonishing resume as a producer, director, and actor includes narrating many, many of the shows he's created. His fertile imagination led to most of the really big reality TV shows out there. And of course, for us in the motorcycle world, you'll be interested to hear the genesis and story behind his Jesse James show, Monster Garage, as well as the biker build-off and Zombie Choppers TV shows. TJ's chat with Tom gives us some amazing insight into other areas of Tom's career, including Deadliest Catch and others. You'd imagine that most of Tom's time is spent sitting behind a desk and on his phone. Not so. His intense stories of capturing much of the content for these TV shows makes for some hair-raising listening. I, for one, was fascinated. I hope you are too. So, from everyone here at Ultimate Motorcycling, we hope you enjoy this episode. The Arch Motorcycle 1S. Technically, this would be their second production motorcycle after the KRGT1, which was more of a, we'll say, traditional, quote-unquote, power cruiser to kind of rehash a an overused term in the V-twin world. But the Arch-1S takes a little bit different approach, brings in some big influences from the sporting side of motorcycling, which you can see just in its um, you know, riding position, the various parts that's, that have accumulated on this bike, and the styling in general is far more sporty. Whereas the KRGT1 is we'll say more in line with the, the V-twin tradition overall. But yeah, yeah, so this is the, the second production bike for Arch Motorcycle, who have been around for, uh, if I'm getting my numbers right, I think the company was founded in 2011 by Gard Hollinger and Keanu Reeves, who are still to this day the two, the two sole owners of the company. Of course, they have many different employees and things like that, but those are the two guys on the, the masthead. So yeah, that's what we're going to be getting into today. Sure. I guess the first question is, is do both motorcycles use the same engine? Is it, so is it a different styling or is there, you know, a different tune or a different engine to this, to the new bike? Um, well, 
they use the same engine. So it is an SNS cycle built T124 twin cam engine. Um, there are some subtle changes between the two from what I understand, but you know, by and large, it's the same SNS motor that uh, you could buy from SNS. However, when you talk about an SNS motor that's inside a an arch motorcycle, it's um, you know there there's some specific things that they've done to it to fit their their aesthetic and also their desires for the bike overall. Sure. Yeah, I rode the uh, the the KR1 GT. I've rode that a a, a fair bit. Um, actually, I've even ridden it around a racetrack at, at Button Willow, and I have to say the motor is an absolute joy. I mean, it's really nice. And of course, these these big V twins, lots of low down torque, and uh, really fun to ride. And the fueling on it was really good. So I'm I'm curious as to um, what you thought of the of the motor. Yeah, it's definitely in the same realm as that. I mean, it's a huge v-twin engine so it's a 124 cubic cubic inches which translates to 2032 cc's to give you an idea you know one cylinder in this motorcycle is the equivalent to uh four cylinders in your average you know inline four cylinder sport bike so you know imagine a dinner plate just kind of oscillating <laughs> or i guess a dessert plate not quite a dinner plate we'll say either way uh, a sizable portion and um yeah you know claimed claimed figures uh you know you're looking at 115 foot pounds of torque which is a number that i say and and if i'm honest is kind of a comical figure just to just to actually articulate you know 115 foot pounds of torque it's it, it's it's immense and the thing that's interesting is that it doesn't make the bike unrideable. You know, this engine is the true definition of American V-twin riding. It's just insanely muscular, very lopy, you know, just has that classic V-twin charm. But the, the sort of refinements that Arch brings to the table and what they've done with that SNS Cycle T124 engine, um, you know, is more than just what meets the eye. Obviously there, there are different machined bits and things like that. You know, they've done custom machining to the cases to fit the aesthetic, but they've also improved a handful of bits to it. Um, you know, upgrading the, the clutch using a, a sort of, we'll say proprietary dry clutch system, um, you know, making some changes to the transmission and also, uh, the oiling system, things like that. But, you know, overall, the the engine is well sorted. And I would say it displays some, some better mannerisms than what I would expect out of a custom chopper, we'll say. Um, so obviously, the the designers at Sport or at, at Arch are putting a lot of thought into just how you interact with this motorcycle. It still uses an old school kind of uh, uh, throttle or cable actuated throttle so it's not a ride by wire throttle there's a pretty specific reason for that it's just the electronics from sns cycle you know couldn't be developed to to accommodate that yet um so arch is you know not really working in that direction for this bike it would just be something that's sort of out of its uh, realm of possibilities for now 
that said, Arch is working on developing its own engine overall, which is you know something that I didn't get too much detail on, but apparently that is in the works. And you know, some newer technologies are going to be into that fold. That said, focusing on the engine, yeah, it's exactly as you mentioned before, just stupid amounts of low down torque. <laughs> um, the the riding sensations of it, it's intense. It vibrates. It you know, it feels raw and just completely. You know, it's it, it's just a visceral experience to use that sort of buzzword in the reviewing, the reviewing world. It's you can feel everything through this engine, and I think that's part of the Arch's charm too. Without a doubt, yeah. It's you know a motorcycle that that can feel that way because it doesn't have to conform to, we'll say, the homogenous nature of production motorcycles in a sense you know, as unique personalities have or exist within production bikes, Arch can really do whatever they want. And they don't have to follow those, those well-laid paths. So that, that nature within the engine can really be fleshed out a bit more. You get a much more sense of just how aggressive this engine is. But like I mentioned earlier, it's not over the top to where it becomes unrideable. You know, it's not just this wheel spinning, insane beast. The feeling is quite good. And again, it's just a simple cable actuated throttle. The, the actual throttle body system and air intake system is kind of the interesting bit here where if you look at the Arch1S and you see a photo of it, you'll see the carbon fiber fuel tank. And in the front of it, you'll have these sort of, I, I guess we'll, we'll We'll, we'll say it's a, an inspiration from the aeronautic world where you have these two active air intakes on each side of the fuel tank. And those things kind of weave through the carbon fiber up to a, a downdraft system and then eventually into a fuel injection system, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so it's pretty interesting because you can't actually see, well, you know, the air box or anything like that, because it's all integrated into that fuel tank and into the, the uh, machines and water jet aluminum. And, you know, the, the precision craftsmanship here is pretty impressive overall. Um, but that's getting a little off topic. Now, the six-speed transmission, yeah, it's still got a hint to that V-twin chunkiness that we'd expect from SNS or, you know, any of the other big twin uh, V-twins on the market but it's far more refined. Again, uh, some proprietary clutch and <clears throat> transmission things going on, but moreover, they've refined that linkage uh, because now we're dealing with a rear slash mid control setup. So it's not quite a rear set like a sport bike and it's not quite a mid control, it's kind of in between and they are mounted directly to the engine cases. So again, you get some of that vibration through there, but not as bad as you might think. Um, there's some damping in there and things like that, and they keep it to a minimum. But overall, it's just this insanely raw and visceral kind of experience. And the, you know, the headers are, you know, you see the headers, they're all blued out and you can burn yourself on them real easily and things like that. <laughs> it's like, it's yeah. just this, 
there's a bit of homebrew vibe into it, which I think is really charming. Um, yeah. But at the same time, it's built by guys that definitely have more sporting inclinations and take much more sporting influence. Um, you know, the carbon fiber muffler, for example, is something that Arch designed in partnership with Yoshimura. So Yoshimura actually developed the carbon fiber bits and things like that. However, Arch is the one that does final assembly um, simply because they don't have the tooling to, to do that in-house. Right. But, you know, designing, development, and uh, assembly is all done by Arch, and then Yoshimura is contracted out for that. That's just one of the many bits that um, Arch designs in-house and then might work with another party. But by and large, a lot of this stuff is actually designed, tested, and manufactured in their, their facilities just, you know, in Los Angeles, California. I think, I think they're in Hawthorne now. Yeah, Hawthorne. Actually, next, next door to SpaceX, actually. Yeah, it's a very, very interesting uh, take on sort of the, the V-twin yeah. V thing because it's, it, it's still plenty of flavor there, um, but a little bit more refined. And I think what I told to guard on our ride during Malibu is kind of reminds me of, you know, rat fink in, in a tuxedo. So think of that classic <laughs> hot rod, you know, caricature. And then, you know, doff it up a little bit. That's, a, that's a very interesting because I was going to make that observation. Essentially, the thing I, I find interesting about Arch and their motorcycles is, is this sort of this juxtaposition of, of opposite ends of the spectrum. You know, you've got these, these guys that are building sort of cruisers or, or you know, American V-twin style motorcycles, and yet they're sporting. They are very sporting. They handle well and they're fast and, and the motors work extremely well. They go to a lot of effort to make these things look, you know, sort of retro and that got that sort of retro um, sort of cool. And yet they use up to the minute um, tooling and and, you know, cutting edge sort of styling elements to it. You know, they carve stuff out of billet and incredible finishes. So they've kind of got these these interesting. They've managed to take two opposite ends of the spectrum and and meld them into something that is definitely a little different. And I I, I admire that a lot. Yeah, um, it it is it is interesting just because if you look at the bike overall, especially the Arch One S in particular, this is definitely a more sporting take, like we we mentioned earlier. Um, and and the brand sees it as something that doesn't really conform necessarily to those hard-lined uh, categories within motorcycling yeah they refer to it as their sport cruiser you know you'll see high fluting takes like oh it's a genre defining things like this in the pr release but realistically there aren't too many things on the production side of motorcycling that are even in this realm and going into this i remember speaking with with guard hollinger who's the co-founder and believe his official title is co-founder and lead designer yeah that said he is one of the main brains behind the whole operation and to give a little background on guard himself just for a second first his name his actual legal name is guard and uh he's also a renowned builder that's one of the yeah the main reasons why keanu reeves and him even came together yeah um 
I remember his his previous shop's name, it was LA County Chop Rods. And quick backstory on that, Keanu Reeves commissioned a guard to develop a dyna for him, a more sporting dyna. And that bike eventually became the basis for the future KRGT1. So a custom bike did uh, materialize from that. And then eventually the the idea of starting a company known as Arch Motorcycle came about and the KRGT1. And now fast forward, I think about, uh, you know, 11 or 12 years and here we are uh, actually guard was on a podcast uh sort of uh, about a year ago so i'll put a link to that one in the show notes so that if anyone wants to go back and listen to guard talk about how arch got started i think they'll find that interesting i think the sort of somebody who doesn't know anything about the company or about guard and keanu personally it'd be very easy to think well you know we've got an a-list movie star and a and a guy who who built choppers on a tv show you know, are these guys real motorcycle guys? Um, you know, or is this just a sort of a vanity project? And the answer is, is absolutely not a vanity project. These guys are real motorcycle guys. I have done many track days with them. They are both real hardcore riders. They love high performance and high performance riding. They know exactly what they're doing with motorcycles, both in terms of designing and riding. And they're they're really good guys with a with a true passion for for motorcycles and and I think it shows. So it's I think that that comes out in the the charisma of an arch motorcycle. Yeah, I mean they're just bike guys at the end of the day. They're just bike guys, exactly. Yeah, I mean it's kind of kind of how it is. They're they're just into bikes, and you know if you look at their personal collections, which kind of reside at the the arch motorcycle facilities. You'll see anything from you know classic Nortons, so classic British British motorcycles, all the way up to Guard has an R1, uh, Keanu has like ZX10R. I say first names. I'm not actually really on first name basis with these people. It's just much easier. Um, so yeah, they have modern sport bikes. They have you know naked bikes, things like that. Um, and yeah, they go out to track days regularly. Yeah, you know things like that and they're just into bikes and that's kind of the cool, the cool thing about it. Um, so that translates here. And that's, that's one of the things where it's not really conforming to that very strict, you know, line of thought with V twin motorcycles in general. Um, if you think about the quote unquote power cruiser thing, your closest comparisons and as far as um, production bikes is probably going to be something like, the Harley Davidson V Rod, which is long defunct, and also the Harley Davidson FXDR. That said, you know, visually, I could see where someone would draw those comparisons, and that's exactly what I do. Having ridden a V Rod, having ridden an FXDR, and this as well, they're radically different from each other. Um, and I, I really think that comes down to the chassis. Um, you know, obviously with the Arch1S, we're dealing with super high-end components, inverted Olin's fork, essentially stuff that you'd get off of a race bike. So it's a very chunky Olin's fork, 48 mil, fully adjustable. Then you also have a fully adjustable Olin's uh, single shock in the rear. And the chassis isn't your traditional British or American V-twin cradle frame. It 
it is in a way it still uses that cradle to really hold things together. Uh, so the, the engine isn't a stressed member. However, the, the cradle itself, you will see that steel down tube goes underneath everything, kind of ties the whole thing together, gives the engine a place to sit. But on the top, you'll have this aluminum brace that comes up and there's, there's a, a nautical element to that. And it, it sort of, if you look at the photos, it's right underneath the seat pan and it actually envelops the shock. It sort of goes over it in, in sort of a tuning fork. According to Guard, this is taken from the nautical uh, visual elements that you see, those sort of curvy natures of, of, of ships. And he mentioned that it, it reminds him of a ship raising out of the water. So if you think about a container ship that's actually coming out of the, uh, you know, the, the ocean being lifted out or lowered in, whatever, think of that, that aspect of it and that, that point right there. But again, to me, that makes the chassis much stiffer because traditionally when you think about V-twin motorcycles with cradle frames or even parallel twin motorcycles with cradle frames, especially older ones, well, they're best described as being hinged at the middle. Um, so they introduce quite a lot of flex. In this case, there's none of that. This thing is stiff as can be. One, because of the high quality heavy duty suspension. Two, you have a beefy bullet aluminum single-sided swing arm and then all of the you know elements that combine and make up this steel cradle or sorry aluminum slash steel cradle frame right so it's far far stiffer than than you might assume um a v-twin motorcycle can be not stiff to the point where it's ridiculously uncomfortable but that just allows it to handle with a bit more prowess than you might anticipate, especially from something that that has a 65.4 inch wheelbase. I mean, it's yeah. not just long, it's long. So, you know, that said, in touching on the geometry bits, the rake is steepened in comparison to the Caro GT1. And also we have the more aggressive riding position, like I mentioned before. And that's another bit of a, a thing that that really breaks those preconceived notions because you sit on it, and it's narrow, feels low, you know, low center of gravity. And Arch only reports dry weight, which is something like 563 pounds. So in running order, you're looking at 600 pounds. But you sit, you know, behind these kind of narrow riser handlebars. You're in more or less a, a, a sport bike riding position or a naked sport bike riding position, we'll say. Um, and to be honest, it actually reminds me of the old Ducati Monster like S4Rs. So the, you know, the kind of the, the last of the beasts, we'll say. Right. Um, and and it, it is kind of a typical, typical kind of aggressive riding position, not too far to the point where you're thinking, oh, this thing basically has, has clip-ons and you're getting that weighty wrist sensation. It's not like that at all. You're just in a much more proactive position to actually influence the bike so I, I think we can agree that the bikes handle really quite well i mean they're not sport bikes they don't handle like a like a sport bike but they handle respectably enough i've ridden the kr gt1 around you know on track quite a bit and for such a long bike it actually turns well like you say it's stiff enough that it's very stable in the corners it's really a very decent handling bike it, it's uh, it's actually a lot of fun 
um, to sort of, you know, to ride it. So I, I assume this this uh, new model is is simply that, but, you know, a, a bit better in that department. Before pulling away in the parking lot, you know, uh, Mr. Hollinger mentions me, he's just said, hey, you know, I know you ride sport bikes, et cetera, et cetera. Try not to override the bike. Really just try to figure out what it likes instead of, you know, putting input into the handlebars and pushing it around because it'll start to fight you. Now, generally, I've never been given a warning about how to ride a motorcycle. Usually manufacturers just say, have fun, don't die. Right. <laughs> because and really bikes modern bikes are built to be as accessible for literally every single person that rides them as possible. Right. That's not a knock. That's just how it is. You know, bikes need to be compliant, user-friendly, et cetera, et cetera. Even at the performance end, a bike may want specific things. It may have a specific personality, but at the end of the day, it's going to behave like most motorcycles. The Arch1S is not like most bikes it doesn't take orders and when a bike costs $128,000 and you know essentially costs four letter word money if someone <laughs> understands what that means right. it's not going to be bullied from the handlebars you know it's not going to 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 acquiesce to your demands as as much as a Yamaha R3 would right and i think that sort of separates the arch from pretty much any other bike I've ridden. I think when we wrapped up, you know, the, the short riding test we had through the Malibu canyons, my immediate reaction was this is the most unique motorcycle I've ever ridden. And there's a lot of things that really make that up. One, like we mentioned before, it has a much stiffer chassis, it has true, true superbike suspension, equivalent suspension on it. Single-sided swing arm, much stiffer. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, cool. Now, the other thing that you have going on that you really need to think about is with the BST carbon fiber wheels and the rear tire in particular. That is a 240, 45, 17-inch tire, a Michelin Pilot Power 3 to be exact. That thing is huge. It is huge, massive. I mean, the contact patch that you get out of it, get out of it is insane. So Okay, is it going to be the same cornering beast as Guards R1? Probably not. You know, not by a long shot. Right. It's not really supposed to be. It's supposed no. to bring in elements from that. What's interesting about this bike is you start kind of paddling through the parking lot and kind of getting out there and you go, okay, well, it doesn't necessarily want to tip in if I just shove the handlebars. It's not going to be bullied from there. Okay, cool. So then how do you ride it? Well, you just kind of sit back and trust the bike and it goes both ways. So there's a bit of a conversation that needs to happen between rider and machine. And you just start tipping in and really use your weight to influence the bike and coax it onto the edge of the tire. And then once you do, you start getting this, you know, freight train-esque, we'll say, uh, line that just draws straight through a corner. And as Guard mentioned, if you start to fight that, if you decide, okay, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to just grab the handlebars, you know, add in as much input to counter steer as hard, hard as I possibly can. The bike doesn't really like it and it doesn't really do anything. So, 
you know, there's that. And, you know, going to the rear tire as well, the moment you start picking up the throttle, the bike naturally wants to stand up as pretty much all motorcycles do. Right. But think about just the amount of contact patch you have working with that rear end. And so you go through the corner, you trail brake in, you know, if you are trail braking and you touch the gas. And so you just let the bike stand itself up and there you go. And so you really need to work with this bike and understand it and learn its, its personality. And I think that's part of the joy of, of riding something like an arch motorcycle, something that unique. I mean, if you're going to build a bike and really, really create something that is separate from the rest of the market, then it should have some pretty specific, you know, traits. And I think in terms of the handling, that's something that Arch has done. Now, what I want to make clear is the bike doesn't handle in a bad way. What I've described is a bike that handles in a very specific way. Right. And it wants to work with a customer, work with a rider, and give them a unique experience. Now, that unique experience is going to cost you six figures, but I, I, I think I, I don't want to say that's what it costs to have a unique experience these days because it doesn't, but it is doing something different. And that's something that is something that we need to bring to light. Um, you know, that said, if, if you go into it thinking that you're going to push it around, it, it's not going to react. It's, <laughs> it's too long. The rear wheel is too big. There's too much torque. It's going to overpower you before you overpower it. And that's just the way it is. Yeah. The bike needs to be sort of massaged. I would say, I mean, you need to sort of persuade it to, to do things. But um, as you said, if you have that dialogue with it, the bike actually reacts very well. So it, it's actually a good handling motorcycle, but you have to be, you know, deliberate in what you do and you have to be aware of what you're riding. Yeah. And there's, there's some really interesting bits to talk about on here as well. I mean, the, the brake calipers in general, they're from a brand called ISR, which I'm not sure a lot of people on the, the touring or sport bike or adventure side of motorcycling will even be familiar with, but they're a, if I remember correctly, I think they're a Swedish brand. I believe they are. Uh, Guard has used them for years and years and years uh, on different builds over the years. But the reason they're unique is because they're one of the handful of brands that use six piston monoblock calipers. Sure. Now I can count the amount of times I've used a six piston caliper on one hand and specifically one finger. And it is on this bike. Um, the braking performance is immense. I'll just describe it as that. And again, this is where we sidestep away from that, that typical V twin riding experience. You think about most V twins on the market today, aggressive braking is not a thing. Uh, suspension right. that is damped and sprung on a sporting scale, definitely not a thing. Uh, you know, handling to this ability, carbon fiber components, all not things in the V-Twin world. And they're all present here on the 1S. So those brakes, radial master cylinder, they are sharp. They bite. They actually have something to them. So at low speeds, you kind of, oh, you, you almost want to start using the rear brake a lot more, which again, is a standard um, four piston ISR caliper. 
Um, you know, so it could be, you know, finding a, a happy home on any sport bike in the market. Mm. And then, you know, braking bias, just because of its length and weight, the, the front brakes work incredibly well. However, you could easily just use the rear brake and get by all day. I'm not saying that someone should actually do that, but it's an option. With bikes of this length, often the braking bias becomes a little bit more evenly distributed, and I'd say that rings true here. However, the, the attack that you get is a lot better. The other thing I want to kind of harp on is, you know, it proves to, to manufacturers that, that we can do more with suspension. When you think about Harley-Davidson, you know, and some of the other V-Twin brands, a lot of the times they're skimping on the suspension components. And although this is, well, it's high dollar stuff, it works really well. So it is sprung and damped on the sportier side of the spectrum, like I mentioned before, and it doesn't really beat you up. That's, that's going to change depending on who you are, how you're riding, et cetera, et cetera. But to me, and just riding around in some pretty beat Malibu canyons, it soaks up everything pretty well and you know it, it has the presence and power to not transfer a lot of that energy into the rider you still get some of it but you get some of it on a sport bike too and that's kind of to me it, it doesn't read, read as harshness more as feedback and there is a fine line between those two things um if you hit you know a, a hard enough dip or a compression bump or something like that yeah you're gonna feel it but okay the bike in running order is you know about 600 pounds it can only do so much like kind of is what it is <laughs> but yeah it's 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 definitely definitely an interesting bike to ride and, and as i mentioned before unique there's that, that's not a cop-out that's not a um you know a kind of milk toasty way of describing it it just doesn't behave like any other motorcycle i've ridden you know there are comparable models like like i mentioned before you know v-rod fxdr things like that they're just nothing like this right that's right. that's kind of just the way it is um kind of moving to some of the other touch points and the finish fit and finish is unbelievable on on arch motorcycles i mean really actually sort of cutting edge stuff i mean really very different and really cool beautiful yeah it's, it's emblematic of a brand that doesn't have to conform to production lifestyles. You know, it doesn't have to conform to, well, we need to make a hundred thousand versions of this unit, blah, 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 blah. This is no, we're making one of one. And that really touches on how these bikes are even sold to a customer. While there are photos of us riding a quote unquote production version, the reality is an arch motorcycle is a bespoke bike which is a word that guard says gets overused around the shop <laughs> you know a customer comes in they purchase the motorcycle and then the the two start working together to really build a bike in you know in, in the vision of that owner and the brand um there's there's similarities between all the all the motorcycles obviously they're gonna you know have the same engine and you know, suspension and, and chassis and things like that. But when it comes to color choices, finishes, um, you know, ergonomics and just touch points, things like that, that's where the uniqueness comes in. That's where your, your custom uh, tradition that, 
that really is the underpinning for every V-twin bike on in the American market. That's where that comes in because it becomes yours, you know? Yeah. So if yeah. Arthur Coldwell's wanted an Arch 1S and, you know, you wanted a red carbon fiber tank with red, red this, blah, blah, blah. Well, that would be yours. There's not just, you know, a per, per guard's description. If you want to go into a dealership and, and get something in every color in, of the rainbow, that's not what Arch does. They do something much different. And when you're charging that kind of money, not only can you do that, but the customer expects that. Yeah. You know, Because obviously this is not the random guy off the street that comes in and says, hey, I want a sport bike. I want to do X, Y, Z, or I want a cruiser. I want to do X, Y, Z. No, they want something different. Not only is the bike a unique experience, but also the, the purchasing experience is completely unique. Yeah. Um, and again, four-letter word money. That's what you get. Now, there's some interesting things about it, like you already hit on. The fuel tank itself kind of comes up on these interesting little levers. It, it folds back, and actually, you know, there's a big A-R-C-H on the, uh, the fuel cap. Uh, it's machines that are just built aluminum. And then you have the seat pan that integrates beautifully into that fuel tank, goes down. It's all just machines, CNC milled and water jetted. I don't know. I'm not an engineer. Either way, it looks cool. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, there's other things too. So obviously a brand like Arch doesn't develop some of their own bits like switch gears and things like that so you'll you'll recognize quite a bit on this bike is just stuff that they've accumulated from reputable brands you'll see if i remember correctly it was like a domino starting switch that you'd see on race bikes <laughs> and to me you know I, I think there's two ways to look at it you can look at some of this stuff and be like oh well that's that's kind of cheap or whatever like i can get that from any any race supplier but on on the other end, for me at least, when I see stuff like that, I'm like, oh, this is that's that's custom stuff. That's the uh -huh. oh, man. But like to to use a term from the racetrack, oh, that's race bike shit. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool. And, right. You know, then they also have an aim dash, which if you know your sport bikes and you know your race bikes, aim uses or aim sports, which is a, a dash manufacturer is used in a lot of racing applications. I mean, half the world superbike grid or, you know, Moto2 grid is using those. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because you can customize them and do essentially whatever you want. Um, so it's a full color TFT display. It has this cool little uh, animation that comes up when you pop it open, but it's very, very direct, direct display. It's just, you know, miles per hour, uh, RPM, a couple other little things, and you're good to go. Um, so yeah, it, it lives on each end of the spectrum where you see the fit and finish that simply can't exist on a production bike, like the, the aforementioned fuel tank that lifts up on these dual levers. It kind of, it, it, it's almost like a, um, there's a robotic quality to it. it. It's incredibly interesting and I wish I could do it justice with words. However, I'll do that in the story. Yes. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, and then there's just absolute kind of crude functional elements to it with the switch gears and things like that, where you're like, I know where to buy this. <laughs> but um, no, overall, the, the Arch has been a pretty incredible experience. It's 
undoubtedly, I'm going to keep saying this, the most unique motorcycle I've ever ridden. And I think for good reason. Um, and it's, it's interesting because as, as we were finishing up the ride and, and talking about it, it's, it's a thing that the guard realizes that most people will not be able to ride this motorcycle just because of its price point. It just because of its low production numbers, just because of the nature of what the product is. You know, it's not a Yamaha, a Suzuki, a, a Honda, Ducati, whatever. Sure. It's not as accessible. Okay. And, and there is kind of a bittersweet element to where most people won't be able to experience this. But I think that's where the custom, custom you know, thing really comes through. Because if you want something that's going to be unique, sometimes you have to do it yourself. And I think that you know, this is a representation of that. Um, yeah. So yeah, it, it's been a very, very interesting bike. And if you happen to have $128,000 laying around, you can get yourself one of these. Now, personally speaking, with the market right now, I'm a little cash poor, so I'll have to wait until <laughs> maybe Q3, but uh, yeah. get back to you on that. Yeah. My feeling is, is as expensive as they are, if I had the money, I would buy one. I, I love the sort of the unique character. I love the fit and finish on them. And... I like the way they they have the looks in in one way, but they do actually work as well. Um, so yeah, they're interesting interesting machines, interesting company, and I applaud them for managing to pull off something that's definitely a bit different. Yeah, it is a multifaceted motorcycle. So when you read into the PR literature, and they are throwing around tons and tons of superlatives as per the usual for every brand, which is their right, their duty. Well, some of this stuff actually stands up, you know, to the test. And yeah, it's just an interesting brand overall. And if you can buy into it, then you're you're really buying into something unique. That said, I think this brand is going to appeal to the the absolute hardcore gearheads among us. Yeah. Um, you know, guys and gals that do have the cash, that do have the coin, that are into the cars and the bikes, that do know what they're talking about a bit, or at least they have someone in their ear that can point them in the right direction. Yeah, terrific. All right, thanks, Nick. Hey, I really appreciate your input. Um, I wish I had been on the ride with you. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. All right, thanks. This second segment is brought to you by the 2023 Suzuki Hayabusa. And in it, associate editor TJ Adams chats with Tom Beers. He's the former chairman and CEO of Fremantle Media North America. They're responsible for American Idol and America's Got Talent. Tom's astonishing resume as a producer, director and actor includes narrating many, many of the shows he's created. His fertile imagination led to most of the really big reality TV shows out there. And of course, for us in the motorcycle world, you'll be interested to hear the genesis and story behind his Jesse James show, Monster Garage, as well as the Biker Build-Off and Zombie Choppers TV shows. TJ's chat with Tom gives us some amazing insight into other areas of Tom's career, including Deadliest Catch and others. You'd imagine that most of Tom's time is spent sitting behind a desk and on his phone. Not so. 
His intense stories of capturing much of the content for these TV shows makes for some hair-raising listening. I, for one, was fascinated. I hope you are too. Reputation precedes it, unmatched performance and striking style define it. We're talking about the 2023 Suzuki Hayabusa. This legendary sport bike is the quickest, most technologically advanced and aerodynamic Hayabusa ever. Its raw power and unparalleled acceleration matches your own drive, while its head-turning design embodies your spirit's flair. Led by the Suzuki Intelligent Ride System, the Hayabusa gives riders a comprehensive collection of electronic rider aids, like the bi-directional quick shifter, the drive mode selector, launch control system, and the cruise control system that simultaneously increases performance, comfort, and rideability. While its advanced analog and TFT LCD display panel connects you to the ride like never before, blending over 20 years of tradition with innovation. Plus, it comes in three new eye-catching color combinations and offers a full suite of available Suzuki Genuine accessories that you can choose from. The ultimate rider waits, so head into your local Suzuki dealer now or visit suzukicycles.com to learn more. It's been fun. You know, I started out, it's interesting. I started out as an actor in New York for years and I just, um, it's funny. I, I was in the theater and then um, <laughs> the last review I got in a play I got, Vincent Camby reviewed me. No, it was Frank Rich, the New York Times. And it said, the review said, even though the actor dies in the second act, there was no cause for the director to cast a corpse in the role. <laughs> <laughs> That was, so I gave up my acting career and, you know, went into yeah, that's this, damning. started writing plays and directing. And I spent years doing that. And then, you know, I spent the last 25 years making television shows and reality. And now, funnily enough, I just got cast as a Confederate, a Civil War Confederate general in a, a, a miniseries uh, for Netflix as an actor. <laughs> well, so after all these years, you've made it. After all these years, <laughs> finally, uh, you know, kind of done a complete turnaround. Full circle. Yeah. Yeah, I was reading. You've, um, I mean, you're an actor, producer, narrator, big time, director, and screenwriter. Um, I read that you got three primetime Emmy awards for creative arts um, for outstanding unstructured reality. Yeah, TV. I, well, it's not TV. It's streaming, and I mean, you've set a precedence there. There was no such thing before you. Yeah, I mean, those were. The, I, I, it just drives me crazy when I see those. What do they call them? Creative arts. It's like, what the fuck is this? I got an Emmy for crafts, arts, and crafts. You know, <laughs> it's like this is ridiculous. You know, it's the same Emmy. I'm in the same prime time slot against Amazing Race, but somehow they win the prime time. Emmy and mine's the fucking creative arts Emmy. I mean, what do I have? Like little bad, those kid scissors with construction paper. What the fuck <laughs> is that? I thought it was kind of a, a promotion, not a demotion. I thought it was more up there. No, I'm, I'm just, I really, I'm always been a, massively offended by that. It's like, wait a minute. It's a fucking primetime Emmy. That's what it is. It's just doesn't air in, in, in prime time on the, and the networks, you know, crazy. Yeah, it is. It's, 
It's offensive to me. Three Emmy Awards. That's just astounding. Yeah, but not not a Creative Arts Emmy. It's a Emmys for the best documentary series on television. You know. Well, um, I'd be proud. Um, I think a lot of people have been imitating you since you started all all of these uh, reality programs. I mean, they they weren't there before you, and and you've yeah. started with. Well, I think what happened was, I mean, you know, what's really more interesting is the fact that. All that stuff that I learned, you know, I, I studied with, you know, Lee Strasberg, the great acting teacher, and I worked for Lee uh, at his house. And, you know, and, and I, I had these great uh, mentors when I was growing up. And, you know, I, I, I really took the craft seriously. And when I started doing nonfiction television, nobody at that point really understood you know, like the, the kind of the concept of using reality, but crafting the shows as if it was a traditional three act structure, that it had character arcs and story arcs and dramatic arcs that I, you know, I learned from the, 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 uh, the, the theater craft, you know, so my show, my shows were a lot more, the storylines were more complex and they were more, you know, interesting because of that. And because I knew how to create these great kind of, you know, you know, act one, act two, act three, in essence, act four, uh, uh, bridges, dramatic bridges that would hold you through commercial breaks, stuff that hadn't been done before. And I really kind of worked hard on, you know, character development with each one of these individuals and casting, you know, so all that. Now, what you say people copied, actually, what really happened was that a lot of people that came out of the kind of the that Tom Beer school uh, went on to create their own. Uh, television shows and and uh, and and use what you know what they learned and what I taught them. So I'm kind of more you know I'm proud of that. The fact that it's like I'm in now a, kind of three generations of, of 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 filmmakers that have kind of worked with me and and have gone on to their own success. It's kind of cool. Yes, yeah. I mean, they were imitating what you started. I'm not saying they could do it in the same way. I mean, because you already had the skills, as you say, you were trained and qualified, not just randomly filming something you made a whole story of it and yeah. you, you made it attractive to people and kept it sort of interesting and particularly concentrating on, on the characters yeah and and their development you know it's funny because years ago uh, when i was at turner broadcasting i spent 11 years at tbs and i ran everything from national geographic explorer audubon i was jacques cousteau's executive producer for six years oh wow so um and I always remember that with Jeek, particularly with Cousteau, um, you know, calling him one day uh, and saying, Jeek, I, I need a give me a treatment. I just two pages on the film that you're that you're you're making uh, that you're going to make next. They already researched. And they're going on in the field. And I remember Cousteau saying to me, well, Tom, I, I, I cannot tell you what the film is. I haven't shot it yet. So, you know, it was like that was the old school way. It's like literally just point at everything that camera and everything that moves and we'll make it all in post. So there was no real thought in, in you know, really understanding story and, and creating and developing story in field. It was all in the narration with pictures. You know, so when I started to do it, it's like, wait a minute, I, I want my characters in scene, on scene you know, talking about what they're doing. And if you look at the, the biker bill, a perfect example, just kind of constantly, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? So let them narrate their own. What are you feeling? What are you thinking? You know, let them narrate their own stuff as opposed to, you know, again, fixing it in post and writing a script that explains everything. 
Yeah, that's more like um, it's a a production then of of the post team as opposed to yeah. you know the creative team, the producers. Yeah, and that well, that was the old way of doing things. I I remember my good friend Peter Firstbrook. I, I first started working with the BBC when I was at Turner, and um, he used to say like to make a half hour show, just take your best thirty shots and string them together and then write something to it and i was like 30 shots are are you kidding me i'd go through 30 shots in the first three minutes you know (laughs) so it was all about you know again pacing and structure that you know it's just it's and it's evolved it's really been quite fun i think the the sad part going the other way is looking at shows like uh a lot of the those reality uh, celebrity shows that are out there, the Kardashians, those kind of shows, you know, because their budgets are so small, you know, they don't really allow things to actually develop and evolve. They got to nail it all here. You got to say this, say this, say this, say this, moving on. You know, so it's become, you know, it, it's more of a, a, a real distillation and, you know, a, a bad copy of what, you know, what used to be good. You know, but that's, I think, more of a, uh, a result of, you know, uh, lower ratings, uh, smaller budgets that have, they have to get a show in, in in three days, you know. And, you know, look at Deadliest Catch. I mean, I would shoot, you know, almost 200 to one on that show, you know. And you've wow, got shows like grief. the Kardashians, they're probably shooting 10 to one. 15 to 1. Like yeah, a, if that. There's no depth. I mean, I don't no. suppose there'll be much staying power. Nobody's going to go back over and watch those shows, whereas with your shows, people do. I mean, they're, as I say, full-on stories of the characters, and they're informative, and that's what people love about them. They're learning about lifestyles and industries and businesses that they would know nothing about without these sort of reality programs that you've put together. Well, I think also, you know, the, the interesting thing for my shows were that I was kind of the first one that kind of created, they're soap operas, but I created soap operas for men, you know, and, and normally they would never, you know, watch those kind of shows. But as, you know, these stories evolved and characters evolved, I mean, I'm stunned at the fact that I'm in season 17 of Deadliest Catch, you know, I mean, when I made the, the first, I made one, one hour. And then I made a couple of three years later, I talked Discovery into giving me money to do three one hours. Uh, and then when they came back and that was such an amazing success, that show when it aired, as a matter of fact, it was the craziest story. I mean, that show, the first one I had boats, three boats sunk in, in these massive storms and people going overboard. And it was, I mean, it was just chaos. And so I wow. sold the network on the fact that, you know, look at this is an, an amazing place. Um, let me go back and let me make a three-hour uh, series, a little mini-series. And I did, but that happened to be a year in December, you know, that nothing happened. I mean, there was no storm. There was flat seas, and it was like, oh, my God, I'm dead. You know, <laughs> I did have somebody going overboard, and I did have, more importantly, you know, I really started to evolve and develop character arcs and in good story arcs and i thought oh my god this show is just gonna suck and i mean i loved it but when i put it on the air little did i know that for some reason there was absolutely no promotion on the discovery channel not even a coming up next 
They buried it. They didn't bury it, but they put it on Sunday night and they stacked it. They said, let's burn all three of them on a Sunday night, eight, nine and 10 o'clock and not worry about it. We'll just get rid of it. And it's gone because it didn't have that same kind of dynamic. But boy, it had great story and it had great kind of internal drama. And the show goes on and Discovery at the time was pulling about uh, 0.8 or 0.9 in the demo on those those hours. Uh, and that show rolled in at a 0.8 or 0.9. But it was the most amazing thing because I filmed, remember, I filmed most of it at night. It's Alaska in the middle of winter. So there's very little sunlight. And you've got sodium, these incredibly beautiful sodium yellow lights, work lights, and everybody's wearing bright orange and bright yellow slickers, and it's raining and it's wet, and the ocean is pitch black. And so everything about it looks so incredibly foreign. It was like being on another planet. And when that show hit, it, let, it opened up at a point eight, And then over the next three hours, every quarter hour, it went up, went to a point one, went to a point one two. 0.1416. It went out at a four. It had four million viewers. I mean, with no, I mean, it just literally built like a perfect staircase for the complete three hours. It didn't even tail off. So the next day. Yeah, they hadn't given it much, much credence. And no, yet it's climbed its way to the top. To, to the highest rated show they'd had in years. So then I got a call. I remember the next day getting a call from Billy Campbell, who was the, the, the head of the Discovery Channel at the time. And he said, my God, this is, and it was his first day on the job. And I remember him going in and going, oh my God, this is incredible. He says, you know, good old boy from the South too. And he's like, we need more of these. He says, you know what? And he came out of the feature business. And so he says, look, look I, I want 10, I want 10 more. And then he called me up about two hours. I said, no, I want 13. When can I have them? I said, you know, in a year. It's like, what do you mean in a year? I'm like, well, you know, the, it's a season. And now it's February and March, and I, I can't shoot it until December. And she's like, wait a minute, what, just, I don't care. Just get boats out there now. Just film it now. And I said, well, you know, I could. There's a tank at Paramount. I could put miniatures on there, and we could, you know, go do it there. But, you know, that wasn't the case. Anyway, it was fun. Yeah. And as you say, you pulled in, unusually, a manly audience. They were manly subjects and, you know, the sort of programs that guys and their sons could watch together, but also enjoyed by women. But, you know, first time. Yeah. And women too. It was, it was a 35, 65, 35 split. So I still carry 35% women for women. Yeah. And you've, so you've um, gone across so many different subjects, um, Monster Garage, Lobster Wars, um, plastic surgery. Um, Coal timber <laughs> oil you know a lot of yeah. i made that career mostly in extractive reserves you know what i mean i mean i've cut <laughs> down trees and i've pulled out oil and i've dug out coal and i you know i've fished for swordfish and crab and you know it's just it's amazing when you kind of look at it i've pretty much covered every one of the timber extractive reserves and managed to keep the politics out of all of it you know because it was more yes. guys working you know there's a formula for that for me and i saw that early on that it's you know high risk and high reward in really hard to reach places you know if you look at those that's what really worked for all those shows yeah, and eye-opening subjects and eye-opening events mm. for people to watch, you know, yes. not seen before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, awesome. And in between all of that, you made films as well. <laughs> you produced um, yeah. films like uh, very famously Captain Planet and the Planeteers. <laughs> that was an people. animated series. That was really quite fun, you know. That was uh, actually I just had I just pulled this out the other day. 
I found this in my one of my storage places. This is the very first cell of Captain Planet right there, see? Oh, wow. Yeah, that's astounding. Yeah. So it's actually huh. a hand-drawn cell that each the, you know, that the, the artists would draw each one and they'd animate them. From each. That. That's incredible. That that's terrific to have. <laughs> that's really They don't even do that anymore. That's single-cell animation, you know? We're now at yeah. computer-generated animation. Very different, very different. Mm -hmm. Lots of work intensive. Um, I'm going to bring, bring us around to back to biker build-off because we have a lot of bikers listening. I mean, it's, it's interesting to hear any, any of the guests that we speak to. It's always interesting to hear everything they've done. But biker build-off um, was, you know, something fantastic and unique. Um, so you had a, a show built based on motorcycle customizers having a couple of weeks to create a one-of-a-kind motorcycle and then they had to ride it. Yeah, well, every show was a little different as far as the mandate, but it was really two-week build-off, you know. And, I mean, look, I came out of, you know, I had Monster Garage on the air, which was like the first real fabrication show with Jesse James. And now Jesse started because Jesse was a bike builder. And this is how this is all started. Uh, the genesis that I was asked, when I was at Turner, I made a history of Harley-Davidson film into the story of Harley. And it was a massive success for Turner Broadcasting. When I left Turner, uh, Steve Burns from Discovery called me and said, hey, look, we want our own Harley show. And back then, it was lucky for me that um, they uh, they weren't as hands-on and as, as, you know, kind of uh, invasive and pervasive as they are now, the executives. So I said, okay, I'll make you a Harley film. But when I started, I said, look, I've already made a Harley film. When am I going to make another one? So I went out there and started to get into the motorcycle world in Southern California. And I realized that what was really, really, really pushing trend was choppers, was handmade, custom-built, custom one-of-a-kind designs. And I thought, wow, this is way more interesting than just Harley. You know, so I baited and switched the network. And didn't really tell them, you know, and I went uh -huh. out looking for somebody and I found this guy named Jesse James. You know, he had a little fabrication shop down in Long Beach uh, and it was a tiny little place. And he, I remember walking in, he had a tank with a shark about this big in it, you know, and I'm thinking, wow, this is kind of cool. And he was uh, definitely an interesting character. And But his shop, I mean, God, he was kind of dead broke and, you know, going through his uh, a divorce and but he was the most amazing craftsman I'd ever run into. I mean, the guy, you know, he could build anything. I mean, hand build these incredible tanks, gas fuel tanks. And I mean, it was like, wow, whoa, this guy is freaking amazing. You know, I mean, really. And he's an he's just a, an incredible artist and, and he could really see unique designs and so anyway so i thought well you know what i'm gonna make a show called motorcycle mania mm. and i'm gonna make it with him and it's gonna be the next you know best thing it's the next great thing you know as opposed to making another harley film so i made the show i put it in the can and delivered to the network and you know the first thing was from the network execs were you know, wait, wait a minute where's harley <laughs> there ain't no harley or no davidson <laughs> in this show i said i know but this is way more and trust me like, oh, yeah, yeah, trust me, it's way more interesting. And the show went on the air because they were 
not happy about not having a Harley show, but it just popped a massive number. And Jesse was, I mean, they were all in love with Jesse James. They were in love with the idea, this craftsman. I mean, they still talked about that aluminum tank that he hand built with a hammer, you know, and it's like, and you know, it's like, fuck, this is amazing. So that was the genesis of, of biker build off. So I had one in the can and then they said, well, you know what? This one's actually pretty successful. Why don't we do another one? So then I cast Jesse and I, I, um, uh, into making another one. So that was when we made this copper, he made a copper bike and went to Copper Mountain, Mexico, and he made it with, uh, with for Kid Rock. So him and Kid Rock, and they did a road trip. And then it was kind of, that was the genesis of biker buildups. When it, that show popped another good, strong, amazing number, then all of a sudden they're like, wow, this whole chopper world is really handcrafted. Motorcycle world is really unique and big. So that's when I started to go, look, I really think that if we, let's make two of them. Let's, you know, find these great, bike builders out there and, and, you know, task them with this, you know, kind of a, a, a competition and, you know, and may the best man win. And obviously you, you know, I've learned a long time ago, all my shows, if you look at them, they have one other part of the formula and that is high risk, high reward, interesting, unique locations. And they're made like a sporting event. You know, every one of them, somebody has to win, somebody has to lose, whether it's the crab count, the boats, the deadliest catch, the log counts on, on, you know, how much oil was pumped out of the ground, how much, somebody had to win, somebody had to lose. So it's like, well, if I'm going to do a series on bike builders, it's got to be a competition series because the, uh, the guys are going to want to watch who won, who lost, you know, and it's, and I got to admit, it's kind of arbitrary. Some of them were, but at the same time, it's like, you know, and I went out and I talked to all these guys, the, you know, Eddie Trot is in the world and Ben, you know, and, and, the, you know, uh, Corey Ness and, and, and Harlan Ness and uh, just the, it, these amazing Eddie Trot, I, I think I said that, and, you know, and Indian Larry and and, uh, and Billy Lane. And I mean, there were so many at the time. Yeah. And I saw you had a couple of motocross guys as well. Mike Metzger yeah. and Larry yeah. Linkogel. Yeah, Luke Ogle, yeah, and I, and I may, you know, my favorite were like people like Jesse Rook also, you know, and, and it's amazing. I mean, they all had, they brought something else to the table and they all brought their craftsmanship to the table and God, it was just an amazing, fun series to make. Imagine the amount of um, people you inspire to actually just start doing stuff to their motorcycles. <laughs> I know, huh? And just all like kind of customizing, but that's the thing about motorcycles that makes them so kind of fun is that you can do that you can customize everyone is you know you can make yourself a unique piece of because uh, you can't really you, know, you can do it with cars but you know it's like with lights and you can't really do it and modify it like you can with a motorcycle you know i mean that you can make your absolute own so yeah, yeah that's that's what made it was cool. you can really yeah really put your personality out there just you know show it with your motorcycle definitely and do you ride yourself you know, I've got a couple of three or four bikes. I've got a West Coast Chopper that Jesse gave me. And nice. I ride that and pull that out. But that, that raked fork is a little tough for me to ride. I just like, eh. you know, I like a little bit more comfort. comfort. So I got a, you know, a Harley. I got a, you know, I got a, a soft tail classic. And I got a, uh, a an old uh, Royal Enfield that I really love to kind of putter around in too. You know, so, yeah, I still got a, you know, a few bikes that, you know, kind of keep me busy and, yeah. Oh, and by the way, you know what else? I mean, Arch. I mean, you know, I've, I've, that's my, if you were asking me what I'm aspiring to, I want one of those Guard Hollinger, uh, 
you know, creations. I want, I want one of those arch motorcycles. I mean, now those things are massively, but that's, that's an amazing machine. They're gorgeous, aren't they? Yeah, God really is another one of those designers who has such vision. Oh, oh man. I mean, it just, everything about that bike, I mean, the handling and just, I mean, even the, just the sound of it, you know, I mean, he's really tuned it into this, this incredibly almost perfect machine. Yes, yeah, beautiful. I should mention, uh, you know, uh, Russ Mitchell too. You know, he's a, a good old Brit bike builder. He's like his brown pearls. I ran to him the other day. He's still out there making great bikes. He is. He's around. I've seen him up at the rock store, actually. Um, he's on a promise to have a chat with me, but he's always so busy. I know it's a tough one. He's a tough one to kind of to nail down for some reason. I, I never kind of, you know, he's, he's a little bit slippery, but God, I do love his motorcycles. Yes. And apparently he's got a few. I'd like to go and have a look. You should see the one he built for me. I mean, he built the, here, I'll show you something. Years ago, I talk about bikes. I wrote a, a graphic novel because my son, Max, really, um, he was really into zombies. Now, this was before uh, The Walking Dead. So I, um, I wrote a zombie graphic novel uh, and put my son in it uh, as one of the, and had him killed by a bunch of zombies. I did not realize that. Yeah. I knew there was the film, but I didn't realize you'd written it and it was based on your son. Your son was a character. Yeah, it's, I wrote this book so it's called Chopper Zombies. But look at this. I actually had the bike made and I used Russell's bike to make it. This is, I think I can oh, so yes. just pop it up wow. here and see if you can see it. But you see the creature yeah. bike? And so it's all basically the, you know, the, 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 I had, you know, the mirrors are held in the hands. Anyway, my hero in the, in the, in the, the, in the story, he gets, he's a bike builder uh, and he gets um, killed by some unscrupulous guys because of um, a, a fuel and an engine delivery system that he's developed and they want to steal it from him. So they kill him and they jam him into a, a, a 55 gallon drum of this bike fuel they make and they roll him down a hill and basically he doesn't die and turns into a zombie and he comes back and he's murdering all the guys that turn him into a zombie and ripping their body parts off but you don't realize until the very end that he's making a motorcycle out of their body parts and so that's that was so that's the hero bike that basically that's that so it's all body parts made from uh from the guys that he killed that is awesome <laughs> Yeah, what a story. So is Max pleased with that? How old would your son have been then when you were writing about zombies before anybody else had heard of them? Oh my God, he was maybe seven or eight. Was he pleased with what he saw? Oh, he was so, <laughs> oh, I took him to Comic-Con, you know, and I basically, yes. and he sat next to me autographing paid the page where he's murdered, you know, so, <laughs> and he just, he, he loved it, you know. Well, I wonder if anybody listening would still have a signed book <laughs> from that oh i i've got them i got a bunch of them hopefully they can drop us a line and let us know it's always good to hear people who uh connect god the zombie one is just spooky as yeah and that's just yeah, a body it's isn't it yeah, human body on made into a bike or get out on halloween and ride that bad boy it's great fun yeah incredible so what's that what's happening now for you or what's coming up or are you actually retired do we ever retire <laughs> these days uh, no, no, no. Actually, no. Gosh, no. I'm, I'm really busy. I'm, I'm leaving for Lebanon, uh, Beirut. I go on uh, the fifth of uh, February. I'm doing a kind of a, a big feature documentary about the, this Lebanese national basketball team, uh, and then I shoot off to Cairo 
Um, I'm going down in the tombs in uh, uh, in uh, Saqqara again. Uh, we're looking at. A, I'm in search of. Um, you know, during the, the old mummy movies, there was a, a, a mummy called Imhotep, and Imhotep. I don't know if you remember or not, but he was the original uh, uh, mummy in uh, the original Boris Karloff movie. I remember those movies, yes. And Imhotep, then when uh, Brendan Fraser made his, uh, the couple of zombie, uh, the or, uh, mummy movies, uh, Imhotep was also the bad mummy in that. Imhotep was real. He was a surgeon. He actually built, the architect, he built the first pyramid the step pyramid in Egypt. Uh, and uh, he also was an astronomer and a doctor. Anyway, he they've never found his tomb. Well, everybody else's tomb has been found, but Imhotep has it. He's one of the three great mysteries, him, Alexander the Great, and Cleopatra. All three of their tombs, they don't know where they are. So now wow. the, they've this huge find. So is this... Um near Cairo where we still see yeah. where the famous pyramids are yeah it is it's still uh it's in Saqqara which is very close uh to Cairo so it's the, it's right underneath the step pyramid so these are there are 300 sarcophaguses basically found they're just stacked you'll see them which is kind of amazing uh, and they're, um, well, it's amazing that they haven't been found in all this time. Yeah. And they so. just found these. So you're going to make a program about that particular mummy. Yeah. We're looking for Imhotep. And so the whole idea is that we're all these, these cat, these sarcophagus, we're looking for his, any reference to him or his family on any of the hieroglyphs. They no longer open these up after about 2,500, uh, BC, you know, at that point, most of the, you know, that they were never wealthy enough then to bury their jewels and their gold anymore. As a matter of fact, that's why there's 300 of these caskets in one tomb, because nobody had the money anymore. They were, it's all, all gone, the wealth and riches. So they're not really worth, and everybody's got their own mummy. Most museums, all museums do. So it's like, well, all right, what's the point of opening them? So they now they're just, they're um, inventorying them and but but the hieroglyphs on the front of the, the of each of the caskets are really important, you know, to see whether Imhotep because if he's there, they believe he's under the step pyramid, which is right next door. But the step pyramid is the most unstable of all the pyramids in Egypt because it was the first one built, and it was about the stones were about the tenth of the size of the ones that were built afterwards. So it'd be really risky to go underneath and have a look. Yeah, it's very unstable. So, but the government would pay the. $80 million to stabilize it if there were proof that Imhotep was there. So that's the whole idea they're in search of. Right, gotcha. It's not often that you can go down down into these um, tombs these days. You must have some sort of special permission to do that because I know they've stopped all that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, that, that one particularly, the one I, I just showed you, I mean, I, to get down there, they literally crank you down like uh, put your foot in a bucket and you held onto a rope, just like a well and just cranked you down 70 feet into a hole in the ground. And that's, wow. that was where, that's where I'm standing in this cavern that was, you know, probably filled with, you know, 20 feet of sand before they excavated it. That's incredible. Yeah. So I, you know, look, I, I, I'm, I'm always looking for the next most interesting thing to do, you know? So those things are, they're kind of sitting in, obviously I'm off to Romania to do this, miniseries as a Confederate general, but the real thing that I'm doing is directing second unit. So I'm choreographing all the, the battle sequences for the Civil War battles and directing second unit because I, you know, I, 
I've never really sat on a like a big feature set for the entire time. So I really want to kind of absorb that next. It's kind of a learning curve for me. And, you know, because who knows? I'd like to come back and direct the Chopper Zombies movie. But yeah. I'd like to be on a few movies. I'm like, you know, it's good for the resume. <laughs> that sounds amazing. So you'll be acting and directing. And do you ride a horse? Will you have to be mounted for that? Yeah. Um, no, mostly uh, soldiers riding or, or walking soldiers. But yeah, I, you know, but I'm not a great horse rider. It's funny that you should say that because I'm actually taking riding lessons now, not because of that, but because another project that I'm working on, um, uh, hopefully, I can't, really can't mention a whole lot about it, but it's uh, it kind of tales of the old west. And so I'm working with a bunch of cowboys on another project that's tied to the Yellowstone projects that are out there. Oh, that's intriguing. Yeah. Everybody loves Yellowstone. Oh my gosh, yeah. that's so popular. Yeah, you know, I like, I really like the, eight, the, uh, the 1883 and the, the new one, the Harrison Ford one. Yes. Those are cool. Kellen Mirren, I really actually like that one more. Yeah, they're, they're fantastic. Great. I love watching those. It's good to enjoy and learn at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and spectacular scenery, just uh, amazing. What a fascinating life you lead. Oh, life's, you know, been great. You know, I, I asked that, you know, it's a great setup. I mean, I spent, you know, the 10 years of my life when I was at Turner, you know, I, I did everything from, I lived with the Kayapo Indians in the Amazon for three months and then the Yanomami Indians for four months living in a jungle hammock in the middle of the Amazon. You know, I've shot in 21 countries in Africa alone. You know, I've basically survived three airplane crashes. You know, I've been shot at, I've spent, you know, three days in an Ethiopian prison. I've kind of, you know, Jeez. done some interesting things. I've drowned in Mexico in an undertoat. And I've, uh, you know, I, I've just, I, but life is just such a, so fascinating and such an amazing place. If you really are, you know, I just have, I realized I, I created a career around my wanderlust. You know, if you think about it, I really wanted to see the world. And I realized that very quickly, if I was a documentary filmmaker, you know, that would probably be my easiest way to do that. And so I, I backed into, you know, a, a job. I found a job that really kind of, and interestingly enough, I'll tell you a very quick side story. Uh, when my mom, when I was 12 years old, my mom, my parents were divorced. My mom was dating a British writer. His name was Alan Silito, and he's one of the, angry young British writers of the 50s and 60s. Yes, I know that name. And Silito, I remember he came back from Safari. I like the way you guys say it better. Safari. <laughs> Safari. And uh, he handed me a National Geographic magazine. And he said, look, if he can do it, you can do it. This is a true story. And I'm like, I don't know what he's talking about. And my, he dated my mom for a little bit. And then they kind of broke up. And, but I've got this magazine and I'm looking at it and this is 1960, uh, 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 geographic. And I'm looking at all the magazine. And I'm like, I don't know what he's talking about. If he can do it, I can do it. Till finally one day out of boredom, I was just looking at the masthead of the magazine and I realized that the man who was the vice president of production for National Geographic in 1960, his name was Thomas Beers. He had the same name as me. And I thought, oh, really? Wow. And so in my mind, it just locked in that someday I was going to do be the producer of National Geographic and flash forward 20 years, 25 years. And there I was sitting at National Geographic in D.C., my own name plaque and having lunch and being, you know, served and realizing that here I am, the Turner Broadcasting Executive 
producer of National Geographic Explorer. It all came true. Yeah, so it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I own, I owe Alan Silito, you know, a great deal of credit for turning me, sending me in that direction. Yeah, pointing you that way. But you've grabbed every opportunity, and obviously there are risks with all that sort of thing in life generally. You have to put yourself out there. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that first, when I made the first Deadliest Catch, I mean, I went to, out to sea, and we were two days out, 200 miles at sea, and ran into the worst storm in 40 years. And, you know, the wind we're pushing was pushing 70 knots. The waves were pressing at 40 feet. Two boats sunk, seven guys drowned, never found the bodies, oh. you know? So, I mean, that was, you know, and I remember coming off that a week and getting it on the ground. And I remember that first day, I, I literally, I didn't even speak English. I, I just grunted. I was so fucking feral from that experience that I was just wild-eyed and completely out of my mind. Shocked. You know, I was just like, big I, I felt like I, you know, spit in the eye of the devil and I'd survived it. Yes, yeah. Those are really life-changing experiences. Yeah, people don't really consider everything that's happening behind the scenes in those sort of um, areas and the programs you made. You've got cameramen and just everybody that goes with the making of there, living in those conditions. Yeah, you know, and it just every day, I mean, it grinds. I mean, it was really hard after a while, you know, I mean, sending those people at sea. I remember I sent my nephew, Tim... Tim Jr. Beers to uh, he got on a crab boat to shoot. He worked for me for years, and I remember his mom, my my sister in law, calling me up, and who's a very you do not mess with Phyllis, and literally just said, you know, anything happens to my son, you're fucking dead, and she meant it, you know. <laughs> the mother's rule. You know, and I like, oof, yeah. The the wrath of mom was, in, and that was like, mm, boy. And so you know, you realize that that weight, and you know, so I. I remember that at that point, I, I wouldn't let anybody go out to see that either was married or had children. Mm. You know, I just was like, okay, I just, I, the weight of that. Just feeling the responsibility. You know, you know, it's interesting in all these tough jobs and all these years of doing it, um, I've lost seven guys have died in my shows, but not one of them has ever died on the job. You know, they died in their beds. You know, they died of heart attacks and, you know, of, of hard life and hard living, but never on the job, knock wood, you know, I just was like. Yeah, it's still, it's still shocking to live with, but. Um, oh, every day. Every, what a, every... That's, that's quite a total. Well, it's been fantastic chatting with you. You're awesomely experienced and you're still going. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, we we'll look forward to sharing, sharing your forthcoming events. Keep finding, just keep chasing that dream. Keep chasing that, you know, don't let life, to, you know, beat you down. It's like, you know, just ride that wave as long and as fast and as far as you possibly can.